Rise Mzanzi is a brand new political party that has caused a nationwide storm. Everybody's talking about them. Everybody wants to talk with them. And we're about to talk to them in an exclusive interview with their leader, Songhezo Zibi. Rise Mzanzi hasn't even contested an election yet, but they're everywhere. They're on billboards and lampposts. They're in think pieces and across all media publications. And they are bullishly confident of an exceptional, potentially even record-breaking debut showing in next year's 2024 general election. So, in our exclusive interview with Songhezo Zibi, we ask him, what's the big deal? What is Rise Mzanzi? What does the political party stand for? Why are so many people so excited, honestly, actually just obsessed with them? And why does he think they're going to do so well as first-timers come next election? This is The Issue with Dan Corder. It's South Africa's watch party because South Africa is a movie. Come watch it with us. If you're brand new here, you should know that every single episode that you hear also exists on YouTube in a video format. You can go watch this interview if that tickles your fancy later. And you should also know wherever you're listening that all of our podcasts are available on Spotify and also on Apple Music. Lastly, if you could just do us the little blessed favor that costs you nothing by clicking follow or subscribe wherever you are listening from, it really helps us keep the lights on even as ESCOM tries to turn them off. Right, this is The Issue with Rise Mzanzi and our exclusive interview with their leader, Songhezo Zibi. So you can pick any of the beanies. Or oh, that, the ones that you're wearing. Or these ones, it's or totally up ones. to you. You wanted this one, but I just want to tell you, Musi Maimane gave me this. Oh, okay, no, then. <laughs> no, no, no worries. Okay, no, we'll no, throw that no, one no away. Worries. Well, Songhezo Zibi, thank you so much uh, for uh, your time. You and your new political organization, Rise Mzanzi, are one of the like, hyperfixations uh, hyper of media. Like, you guys are getting more media coverage, I'll be honest, than, like, respectfully, much more established politicians who've been yeah. doing this for much longer. Why? Why do you think so? Because we've got good people. Uh, we've got a, a really good comms team, but I also did media relations for 23 years. Yeah, you were so Absa, Glencore, um, Volkswagen. Uh, Volkswagen. I was Volkswagen, Extrata, mm. then Absa. In but between, I was at Financial Mail and Business Day. It must and be terrible to be your director of communications. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, if he does a bad job, you know. <laughs> no, no. I, well, I mean, I, I would hope not. But, I mean, if I'm going to fail at anything mm. out of this whole political mission, it cannot be media relations. I mean, if you can't do properly what you've been doing all your working life, what else can you do right? 100%. Yeah. So what is Rise Mzanzi? From, from what I can see, you guys are trying to be new and young and fresh and kind of free of the old people trappings of modern politics and also the legacy trappings of modern politics. So even a Julius Malema is younger, but he's also ANC stock, ex-ANC Youth League president and all the rest. All of the other major political parties that have come about recently are spin-offs of the ANC to one degree or another, whether you look at COPE or something else. You guys are trying to be brand new, but your approach has also been fresh. So you guys went on a listening tour of the nation, which a lot of South Africans went, oh, the Freedom Charter was built like that. And you guys said, this isn't a Freedom Charter, but it's similar in energy. Yeah, I think then the one thing that's different about us is that we have a really grand ambition. Uh, South Africa's democracy is 30 years next year. The question is, what does the next 30 to 50 years look like? Can we just carry on as if it's business as usual? Sure. How have we done the last 30 years of South Africa's democracy? And what do we need to do differently? What do we need to do better if it's not different and, and so on? 
And you can only get clarity on all of that if you go and talk to people and have really meaningful conversations in a way that people talk to their friends. And the outcome was Rise Mzansi, a political alternative that is built by the people. And that's a really important uh, distinction because asking people to switch from one political party to the next he said, no, no, they don't want to do it. They want to do something they can really believe in. And we are happy to have been able to offer that answer. Okay. So what if uh, you ask the people and they disagree with your politics? <laughs> like, I'm interested to know because surely there were core foundation principles that were non-negotiables yeah. for you. And then asking South Africa with its diversity of beliefs could have tweaked or modified them, but there are core principles of yeah, RISE yeah. that are non-negotiable. Yes. We, I mean, a couple of things. At first, we are a political and social movement, okay. right? That's really important that for us, the politics is about community. It's about family. It's about things you do on the daily one of the mottos we use is the personal is political. Anything that affects your life is a, is, a, is, a, is a political issue in one way or another. We feel that South Africa in its soul is social democratic. The values of social democracy are freedom, equality, justice, and, and so on. And we believe that the social democratic values resonate with South Africans, right? South Africans have a lot of solidarity. They don't want anybody to be left behind. Freedom, I don't need to tell you about. Equality, I don't need to tell you about. Integrity, I don't need to, to tell you about, right? And we felt that if we if we found Rise Mzanzi's very existence on these values, which are aligned to the constitution, we are more likely to connect with people's hearts rather than just their political interests. So before anybody in the YouTube comments says he said social democracy, he's a socialist. Yeah. Uh, what exactly for you is the social part of social democracy? Because, I mean, I know a ton of people who describe themselves as social democrats and they disagree on quite a few things. Yeah. So I think to simplify for anybody who's listening uh, or watching, Dan, if you know anything about Germany or Sweden, yeah. we're trying to get to Sweden, Denmark or Germany. Basically, that's what we're trying to do. What do those societies look like? Those societies are founded on the idea, at least they are social democracies, founded on the idea that our job as a polity, as the people, is to create a political system that makes sure that people can have access to three things. One is opportunity to live their life in the manner in which they want and fulfill all of their rights. Secondly, that when they are weak or they're not able to look after themselves, the rest of us through the state are able to look after them until they're able to get up on their feet. And thirdly, the reason for building wealth and prosperity is to have enough in the tank so that we can do all of this solidarity stuff of looking after everyone, investing in education and so on none of which are free, but we agree as a collective that this is what we're going to do for all of us. Absolutely. No, and I mean, I think you're completely right. I think social um, democrat policies resonate with South Africa. And I'm also interested to see how, uh, do you think that um, the ANC has got social democratic values? Because they've got an extremely robust welfare state. They've just, in the last budget speech, extended the kind of like extreme relief yeah. for poverty stricken. Um, they've done it badly, but like healthcare, education, these are principles that the ANC does pursue and many other political parties try to like do the same or claim that they would do the same thing in power but like 
just a little better than the ANC does. What do you see that as? I think one of the failures of the ANC was to not come out and say, we want to be a social democratic organization. Okay. They couldn't break from the past, so they have to be pseudo-Marxist huh. or pseudo-socialist right? while trying to do something else, right? But social democracy, social democratic politics allows you to have a conversation such as this then. Asking women, especially poor women, whether one of the reasons they don't work is because of two reasons. One, transport costs are too expensive, and secondly, there are no childcare facilities. Now, we think if everybody has a job, they're fine, but there are millions of people in South Africa for whom having a job costs more. Than us, yes. And a social democratic response says, okay, how do we solve that problem? So you don't just give somebody a job to spend their money inefficiently on paying expensive transport. You need to have a public transport system as well. You need to make sure that every community has childcare facilities. Then the woman can work. So how is that different from the ANC? Because you said pseudo-Marxist. They don't frame it like that. This is the thing. So the thinking in the ANC is that we'll give you a job. You deal with the inefficiency yourself. Oh, so they don't go far enough. Yeah, then. Listen, we call Texas public transport. If you're really committed to the social democratic outlook, they're privately owned, eh? Yeah, that's true. They're not public transport. They're unsafe. They're expensive. Unregulated. Unregulated. A social democratic political system doesn't work like that. Okay. Yeah, so that's the difference. So in your vision of a social democratic government, what is owned by government and what isn't? Because you guys are quite interesting on your website. So you haven't released your manifesto yet. The manifesto, yep. I think, is scheduled for early January. And I want to ask about that because it feels very brave, so a few months before an election. <laughs> but um, I'm sure you have an answer for me. Uh, but something that you did say is that you'd strip down the number of ministries, potentially strip down the number of SOEs, but run them better. What is your vision for what the government owns? Like, does the government own the taxi industry under Rizam Sansi? No, I mean, the government doesn't need to own the, the, the taxi industry. I think a, a defining feature of social democratic uh, states is that you first need a strong state that functions and can provide basic services to everybody equitably. That is the number one job of a government. So that's the, that's the first thing. The second thing is to have rules that facilitate investment in, 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 in operations or commercial or economic installations that have real benefits for okay. people. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Volkswagen, mm. which people don't know, is a state-owned company. People don't know that. But what did the German government do? They decided, okay, we're going to have a strategic state in Volkswagen, which is 4%. You can't move, even if they get a 90% shareholder, you can't move the headquarters out of Germany and so on. But we will let... All of these German companies and investors who've made wealth out of this welfare state that we have invest in this company so that it can employ 250,000 Germans and it works for everybody. And that's where we need to get to in South Africa and not be fixated on the state owning everything. Okay. Because it then owns 100% of the risk and we bail out uh, SAA instead of paying money for school transport. Okay. Yeah. So which SOEs do you think should be owned on the Volkswagen model where the government owns 4% and there are some non-negotiables in terms of targets and principles and headquarters and working for the country, but the rest of it is private investment? It's really the, the thinking that, I mean, the 4% is as an example, but let's take Transnet. Yes. If you applied the same logic that you apply to the road network, mm. the government owns all of the roads, right? 
It doesn't own the cars and the trucks. And that works just fine. Okay. Right. Why does the government need to buy any locomotives at all? Okay. When it can run, can build, operate, and secure the rail network. Okay, so your vision is infrastructure is owned and maintained by government. Infrastructure is, 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 is controlled strategically by the public. And I'm saying controlled strategically by the public because when you have a transnet where the government owns the rail and so on but doesn't own the locomotives, you set the rules yes. of investment within that. Because so locomotives can't run without your networks. They like can't the run without your network. <laughs> right? But don't be hostile okay. to the idea of somebody buying a thousand locomotives which Transnet cannot afford right now. Okay. So what does that mean for ESCOM? Because you in a recent, well, not a recent interview, but earlier this year, you said you had three big things and it was load shedding, corruption, and crime. So yeah, yeah, yeah. let's start with the one that most South Africans care about right now. A question that people can comment on below this video. Who said ESCOM has to focus solely on fossil fuels, for instance? That's true. <laughs> right? That's why I keep saying it's about the thinking eh, than anything. One. Secondly, if you take the transnet model, ESCOM becomes a facilitator in that, uh, in that instance. I'm, I'm glad that transnet is, uh, ESCOM is going to be broken down into three, generation, transmission, and distribution. And I think where we really need the investment is in transmission because we need close to half a trillion rand. ESCOM does not have it, but the government is able to set the rules of private investment in that so that we sure. can then transport the electricity. Sure. I can tell you, Dan, you sort that out. Your financial difficulties with generation and distribution are a lot less because you can shift that money where it really matters, including okay. renewables. Okay. And climate change is a big part of, I think yeah. it's your fifth pillar at the moment. Yes. I mean, I just call them pillars because you don't have a manifesto out yet, yeah, yeah. but like these are the five core things. Uh, the government is at the moment trying desperately to get, and to be fair, we've seen in South Africa that in great scarcity, private like South African companies do a very good job like the yeah. private security industry for example so we've seen a lot of like environmental uh, or at least like sustainable energy companies are coming to the fore and say that by 2026 or 2028 they can get wind farms solar farms and the rest right. would you go further than that? Yeah I think I mean we, we have to make certain decisions Yeah. for instance we think that it is entirely viable to just commit within a generation to have solar power on every household yes and every small business because what's possible in that scenario is the same thing that we had with dstv you used to get those guys specifically from dstv and then eventually thousands of guys could install dstv Panels, yeah. right it gives you an opportunity for manufacturing partnering with germany and china who are major trading partners of ours to have manufacturing facilities here it solves another problem in relation to your question before before this one about ESCOM, because it means you shift peak demand off ESCOM yeah. onto solar, and you're better able to use the base load for economic and commercial activity, which we desperately need. So I find all of this incredibly interesting because uh, the social democratic principle is to uh, have the government create a state which cares for people more effectively yeah. and a lot of what you're saying which is done in germany and sweden and you know uh, the the scandinavian dream zones uh but like a lot of what you're saying is we as the government as Rizam zanzi government would create the framework within which 
on our mandates, private sector can do its job very well. Yeah, that's what governments are supposed to be doing. Anyway, anyway. Many governments it's just, don't. It's just a degree to which they do that. Sure. If you look at the United States, you have rabid capitalism where people don't want environmental rules or sure. building standards and so on. That's anarchy. Right? I'm just interested because I think that some people, having heard this, will call you a socialist and other people will call you a capitalist. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> it's right? super interesting. This is, the pro- <laughs> this is the problem with social democratic politics, by the way, because people look for binaries. And many people go, oh, it's capitalist or communist, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. I yeah, understand. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, but Dan, can I tell you something interesting? I mean, wh- one of the reasons there is an aversion to private investment in public assets is because of our history. Yes. When you say to a lot of people private investment, they think white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, so how, do we, how do we change that thinking? And you do that, for instance, by making sure you've got more black asset management. Companies making those investments in Transnet and ESCOM and suddenly the conversation looks different because who owns the pensions that they invest? Mm. It's mostly black workers. Yeah. But you have people with this fixation that if you take black workers' money and you invest it in public assets, oh, it's wrong because the people who manage the actual investment are white. And we even think that is their money. It's not. <laughs> So what do you think about affirmative action? I think, we, oh, we're going to need it for, for, for quite some time then. Uh, I mean, let me give you an example. When I was uh, at APSA, it took us four years to bring male-female pay on par sure. for the same amount of work. And I can tell you, if we did not deliberately set to do that, it would never happen. Right. It's a form of affirmative action. One might think, oh, all bosses are fair and they pay everybody fairly. No. Right. So it's not, it's not just race, it's gender, it's sexual orientation. Uh, you know, queer South Africans are more likely to be subtly discriminated against, not promoted. And, and overtly. So yeah. yeah, and overtly, right? So, so, you know, again, if we take affirmative action at principles level rather than just race, you realize that if you want to create a fair society, you have to create frameworks that uh, help us against our own prejudices. So is there any chance that these principles will not be borne out in your manifesto? Or are these the fundamental non-negotiable principles of the party? No, I mean, equality is, is one of those. Equality and equity is one of the, of the non-negotiables. This is why, for instance, we believe that unless you set out to, you set out to intentionally, for instance, invest more by way of sporting and other facilities in low-income areas, you are not going to have the diversity that you're looking for in the Springbok team and the sure. cricket team and that sure. sort of thing. It's and then you need a Rassi Erasmus. Right. You, you know what I mean? So, so we sometimes take these exceptions where, you know, there's probably five players who are really much better than Sia, for instance, and others, but we, we never know. Right? So these are non-negotiables, but in a consensus-building way, because when you set rules for everything, then there are always loopholes. It doesn't matter how well you do it. That's true. So uh, the, I think maybe the top of one of your founding documents on your website says electoral reform. Oh, yes. Which is huge because that's yeah. 66% of the 
parliament vote to change the constitution. South yeah. Africa was created as a, as a representative democracy. Uh, and there are, you know, many pros and cons to that. There are many pros and cons to other systems also. But what your policy document spoke about at length was that there was this sense that there wasn't meaningful accountability for politicians who didn't perform once they were placed in positions of power by their party after the party got the vote. So how would you change the electoral system? It doesn't need a constitutional amendment. Okay. That's the amazing thing. The constitution talks about the principle of proportionality. That's all. <laughs> right? And, and there are many ways in which you can define that. The only reason we haven't had it is because it weakens uh, the power of political parties over their, over their members. We think it is possible over time then to convince other political parties too that we need to have a more representative uh, political system. The Fonseil-Slabat Commission actually had a really good proposal, which was 300 electoral districts, 100 proportional uh, places in the, in the National Assembly for each and every political party, and the 100 is meant to compensate for disabled people, etc., etc. But generally, you want citizens to be able to say, Dan is my representative. I love him. You know, he's in Rise Mzansib, and I'm from the ANC. That will not be taken out of context. It will not be. Taken. <laughs> but, you know, you know, I'm from the ANC, but he works hard, that guy, right? I'm going to vote for him in the province, and I'll vote for my party in the National Assembly. It's not possible. So the democratic choice is limited by just voting for a political party. So what would you prefer? We'd prefer a... Uh, the Fonseil Slabat Commission, which was commissioned by Parliament, by the way. So when somebody goes to the ballot box, what do they see? And what so are when you choices? go, it's, if it's essentially what you get in local government. We already do this. That's why it doesn't need a constitutional amendment. Mm. We do it in local government. The only thing citizens don't have is visibility mm. on the people mm. that represent their specific area. Sure. And therefore, you need to have three to four hundred electoral districts in South Africa. And when somebody goes to parliament, they know which district they represent and sure. the citizens in that area know that this is their representative. If that person dies or resigns, we elect a new person. Okay. Yeah. So N Not have a celebrity being chosen by a political party course. and they end up in parliament. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's interesting because that is a radical change. It reminds me of the state system for senator in the United States of America, except that you're not separately voting for um, a uh, president, right? Because you're talking about our actual parliament, each district is represented and that's parliament. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then where does the president come from? I mean, for instance, the beauty of our constitution, we can still keep the presidential election as it is. Okay. okay. <laughs> Which means MPs still elect a president. So we just no longer, because the current system is, if you get the majority as a political party, you take up that amount of space in parliament and you choose who goes there. That's how yeah. Mkwebane is now an EFF MP, yeah, yeah. extraordinarily. Right. And that party also picks the president. Yeah. Okay. Right. So that's what we have right now. So it doesn't change the way the president would be elected. In fact, I think this process might even have more legitimacy because the people that put up their hands have got provable constituencies. Sure. That, you know, that may or may not agree with them. And that tension in a democracy is good. It's very healthy. Yeah. Why would any political party do this with you? Especially the big established ones. Because they're beginning to realize that it hurts. It's beginning to hurt them. And let, let me give you an example. The, the ANC has, in the 2021 elections, had the lowest 
voter turnout in areas where it had been traditionally strong. So people just don't turn up to vote. And part you, you can't build a relationship of trust with a thing that has got people in it, but you don't have access to the people. So even the ANC is now talking about opening up branch meetings to other members of the public, getting people nominated by the public onto its list, etc., etc. There is a realization that unless you bring this thing closer to the people, it's just going to keep losing legitimacy. For sure. Okay, the last two. Well, there are three still big questions on your on your list, but I want to start with crime and corruption as one and two, yeah. because you said load shedding crime and corruption. Yes, like, yeah. So how do you go about combating systemic corruption and how do you go about combating South Africa being the most dangerous place in the world outside of active war zones at the moment, particularly for women and children, but also crime is hideous. The Minister of Transport was robbed on Monday with yeah, her security yeah, yeah, detail. The security detail, like, yeah, yeah. How, like, <laughs> like what are your policy visions for how those two things can be addressed. Let's start with corruption then. I mean, a lot of corruption happens because of lack of transparency. In, that, in other words, journalists and ordinary citizens have to go to extraordinary lengths to get an understanding of how decisions were made sure. and why. Now, if you don't have access to that information, it is difficult to work out whether something was corrupt or not. And it usually takes, you know, a Mapungane or somebody doing an extensive investigation. Solve the transparency problem. Again, no constitutional amendment needed. There is a concord judgment that says all state information must be made public unless there is a specific reason why it should not. But the current government does a very good job of not releasing information and then slowing it down in courts to the point where, like, the information is almost devalued because it's so, too far from the initial incident. No, sure. But, I mean, three quick interventions, uh, then just on this one. So, for force transparency, di- mandatory disclosure I see. of government information. So, nobody has to request it. Every quarter, this information must be published. For and sure. Journalists and everybody. Like can, a publicly owned business. Right. For sure. So, that's, uh, that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is that part of changing the electoral system, by the way, is partly to deal with the corruption issue. Because you you need oversight in parliament that is worried about not getting elected if they don't do their job, right? So that is the second thing. It's really important. The third one is actually I would uh, significantly remove a lot of the guys in our criminal justice system. In the cops, in the cops, in the in the NPA, and and so on. I mean, bribery and corruption between the two are so endemic that even slam dunk cases don't get prosecuted. Absolutely right. And the disincentive is not there. Sure, crime on the streets. Violent crime, by the way, there are some social trends or public health issues that drive violent crime then, which make it difficult to deal with the kind of crime you are making an example of. Also, you want symptoms alcohol not abuse, yes. alcohol abuse and drug abuse. Sure. The majority of murders by far happen within a particular radius of a tavern or a bar of a club and that sort of thing. And if you were to, for instance, effectively manage that kind of driver of violent crime, you also relieve police resources from having to police crime that is essentially impossible uh, to police. And I think it's important to, to, make, to make that point. The second is part of the reason we've chosen family and community 
as key pillars of how we're building the manifesto that's coming out in, in January is because it is in the social and public health infrastructure that you're able to give people an opportunity to live a meaningful, productive life and not fall into a life of crime. The third is actually good old policing. But you can't do any of these uh, separately. You have to look at them holistically, and that's what we, we're doing. Yeah, because, it, I mean, exactly what you've described is like trying to treat the symptoms never roots out the cause. Yeah. And that kind of, for me, immediately means that you've got to fix education and health and healthcare and create jobs for people oh, course, yeah. so they can create meaningful lives, as you oh, described. Of course. I mean, one of the things you fix, by the way, Dan, you know what it is? Make an impact on both education and this sort of thing? Yeah. It's food hunger and stunting. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we've tried to develop a political conversation where none of these things stand alone. I see. At all. Yeah. Because that's what we've kidded ourselves. You can throw people in prison all you want. Mm. If people still get drunk four days a week with knives and guns, they're going to kill each other. Death penalty won't help you. So we've got an integrated approach to, to, to all of this. They keep coming back to so uh, economic growth, yeah, <laughs> one of the most stagnant political economies, or de sorry, democratic economies in the world. I actually, I always tell people that it's a miracle that South Africa has not. Yes, we've gone into like the debates whether or not we've gone into technical recessions over the last handful yeah. of years, but like we've not gone into a grand recession, and that. Con particularly considering load shedding and unemployment rate is a bit of a miracle, but I don't know how much longer it can last. What are like a couple of the things that you would see? I mean, other political parties who are more capitalist are just like free up the labor market, screw minimum wage, screw labor conditions, maybe even more of like a libertarian approach. What's yours? No, I mean, the things that we need to do, by the way, almost have nothing with that, nothing to do with direct economic interventions. Okay. Then. So okay. I make this example time and again, so please bear with me. Mm. I come from near Coffee Bay. Okay, cool. In the Eastern Cape. Beautiful area of the world. How's the road? <laughs> Not good. Right. If you don't fix that problem, then that economic corridor doesn't exist. That's true. Y you understand? There is no a water treatment plant or anything like that, either in Coffee Bay or in Hole in the Wall or the Haven or Tata River Mouth and that sort of thing, right? Mm. There is no piped water and so on. What do you think happens when you fix that? You invest in those. You've cut out the corruption and you're investing in public infrastructure right. in that way. Right. That area becomes like the south of France because locals themselves begin investing in their Absolutely. own area. Right? Mm. So it's not rocket science. And I feel that the disease of South African politics is looking for a rocket science solution. That's going to take care of all the basics without dealing with any of them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the age-old boring question for every social democrat, do we have enough money <laughs> to do all of this? We don't, by the way, which is why the private investment is important. Right. And by the way, let's not see private investment as big businesses in Johannesburg. I come from Tata. Crime is bad as an understatement. Mtata residents themselves do not want to start a spaza shop or a side gig. Cool. Right? And so if we understand this to be a sort of generally a third world economy where you need a lot of SMMEs and commercial activity and so on, the entrepreneurial spirit is there. The question is, how do we create the environment in which people are able to voluntarily deploy their own money into creating 
income and economic opportunity. And if we look at it that way, you come to a set of answers, whether it's a person doing a side gig all the way to a large commercial uh, entity that can invest billions. Good. Thank you. I fully understand everything about Rise Zanzi now. What is a good election performance for you in 2024? As a brand new party with no political track record, because this is what I was thinking when I um, saw that you guys didn't have a manifesto, and I personally don't think it's that bad to have it come out that late. I'm just worried that like, like the way that you get people to vote for you is they know you, they recognize you, they see you, you guys are brand new, and you don't have a lot of time to tell a lot of people a lot of things and then get them to sway from political narratives that they've already voted for, which is a kind of emotional investment that happens to people when they've actually voted for a thing. So then the manifesto is not a big thing. I mean, if I were to ask you or anyone whether you know specifically the the difference between the DA, EFF, and ANC solution on basic education. You but know, I do know key policies. No, no, hang on. Mm. And you do a particular job, right? And we'll come to the solutions. I think the important thing as far as your core question, which is how much are you going to get? People are looking for two things. They're looking for presence. They're looking for consistency. For sure. It's those two things. If you can prove that you are present and you are consistent, people are going to vote for you. That is why we have got the organizing model that we have, which is always on in the community all the time. And we think that can propel us to a top five position. Top five? Top five, yeah. But top five could be 5% or 10% because we're going into this interesting political reality for the first time in South Africa's modern history where the major parties are crumbling. And this is actually a radically exciting time because there are a lot of political alternatives that look like they could get a 2%, a 3%. You guys looking for top five, however much percent that is. Conservatively, conservatively between five and six percent. And that's basically the minimum. The rest depends on how much resources we are able to mobilize specifically because we've got a hectic always on organizing model, uh, which costs money. Um, But five, between five and six percent, looking at current growth in the organization is eminently doable. And we've got a long term. Uh, of course. So of course. 2026 is a big year. I know. Us. That was initially your guys' debut no, and then no, you no. changed. 2020, <laughs> 2026 yeah. is a big year. Local government. Because all politics is local. People don't complain about Palapala. They complain about the cop who demands bribes so as not to lose a docket or sex for jobs and that sort of thing. That's how people define their reality. And that's, and that's how we've chosen to do our politics. So 5 to 6% would be almost a record-breaking oh, yeah. debut. Oh, yeah, it would. Yeah, okay. It would. And there are, I think, three other political parties I've spoken to also think they'll get 5 to 6%. Our method is better. <laughs> our method your, is better. Your statisticians are better. Oh, no, no. It's the organizing model. Oh, let let me see. share a little bit about it, right? Because I think it's important for people to understand how actually change can accelerate in South Africa faster than they think. The important thing is that you need, you need to be able to always be present in communities and get people to commit mm. to voting for the organization. That's a long process, by the way. It's not a single conversation. It's two, three, four, five, six conversations. And then do politics in action for 
basically as often as you can years into the future right and when you do that when we get to the election next year we will know by name and phone number and location and voting district the people that have said guys we like your politics you. we will vote for you we know what those numbers are mm. all i can tell you right now is that as of last week we were getting about 20,000 new people who sign up in that way into the organization per week per week, okay. per week. Okay. we think it is possible to reach 25 30k by december okay. and then accelerate from there that's really those are really impressive numbers it's taken long yeah i can imagine it's i taken, can imagine it's taken it's, very long it's a uh, It's really interesting to hear all this. If you get a substantive enough percentage that if when the ANC drops below 50%, you might be approached to be a minority partner in a ruling coalition with the ANC. Oh yeah. <laughs> It's highly unlikely that they'll ask you or that you'll say yes or No, both. no, no. I I know for certain that they would ask us by the way. Oh, you do. Yeah, because because our politics. I mean, you know, I said earlier that they've been trying to do social democratic politics. So then for for a while. So right? then you would say no. The South African people would have decided at that point that they do not want the ANC to have a majority. Oh. To bring them back via the okay. back door. To bring them back via the back door. Especially as an organization like us, you might end up like the Liberal Democrats in the UK. Of course. And not exist in the next election. Totally, because it's just how dissatisfied they are with Labour or the Tories. Right. Basically, I hear you. And but, then you bring them back. But um, government by coalition in any democracy is horrible. Like because on the smallest or biggest thing, minority partners could have an outrageous demand, or they could get upset with a majority partner. Coalition could fall apart. And with every extra party, there's more jeopardy of that. Particularly if you're right and five to six percent is realistic, as opposed to one or two percent, like the good party with Patricia Delisle, who's just so happy to be here, basically as a minister. So, my question for you then is: Would you rather have the ANC get 40 percent, but the most votes, uh, but rule as a minority government? Because that that for me is largely a democracy where nothing gets done in parliament like we've seen in Israel for example many israeli election cycles have had yeah, minority they, likud had like governments prime ministers yeah and I, and like minority <laughs> likud governments in every single bill you're begging two other parties to stick with you do you I'm think that's what's going to happen i'll say two things not if we get 10% or more which is eminently doable. I okay. think what we believe is that South Africa, the stability of South Africa's future coalition government lies in about four political parties. That are not the ANC. That are not the ANC. About okay. four political parties that need one another. Who uh, can't you work with? No, you know what? I, I mean... Not in terms of personal... No, can I, can I, can I, give, can I, mean, can, can, can I give you an example? So we need to mature in South African politics. In Europe where there's lots of coalition governments, right? You you don't look for somebody who's got similar policies to you, sure. right? You look for somebody you can do a deal with. So Absolutely. let me give you an example. Do you know who the most trusted coalition partner in the metros and everywhere is? In South Africa. In South Africa. It's That's a Freedom Front Plus. Really? Yes. Why Everybody talks because they are pragmatic. Okay. They don't try and they get do, you. They, they don't do try and they get you to, to say ditch affirmative action. Okay. They say, how can we govern effectively? Yeah. Who needs to be in the room? What are the top five things that if we all did, okay. we win, right? That's the maturity we're hoping to bring into a coalition conversation. 
This business that we need to be alike before the election is stupid, Then Nobody else where they say culture of coalitions does it anywhere in the world. But South Africa's politics, and I completely agree with you, like even just watching what's happening in German-Polish politics, for example, right now with their coalitions, is super, I completely agree with you. But South African political parties are children when it comes to coalitions. In the last you three know years... Now exists. <laughs> because in the last three years, I mean, we've done videos on the horror show of local government coalitions failing, the yeah. squabbles and the nonsense, and the literal service delivery that then does not happen, the crises that take place. Uh, I think you're... I think you're very optimistic in a bunch of other politicians who have shown themselves to not be capable of running coalitions. And I, and I hope that you're right, because our political discourse needs to mature. No, then there's another. The problem is not what you're saying. It's okay. something else. Okay. And that is we have politicians who do not inherently understand how collaborative democracy is supposed to work and how the state actually works. Okay. Right? And I have to say this very carefully, Dan, because these are people I get into a room sometimes, but I must tell you, sometimes I worry that even when these political parties are in a room amongst themselves and there's somebody from outside South Africa and they just listen to this conversation, they would go, oh, my God. Right? So in a way, you're right. But what we're hoping we can achieve is the idea of a sense of national purpose. Totally. It's a sense of national purpose, and we talk a lot about national purpose generally. And when you've got four instead of nine political parties, as cumbersome as this is, it's a lot less to deal with than, you know. So in a... In a in a fantasy land, no shame, not fantasy land. I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just wondering. But like in the ideal scenario where one party, well, so four parties between them get fifty percent, yeah, and they think they can work together. Yes. Who's the president? Is it you? <laughs> then I don't know if I want to be president at this point. But uh, given, no, given you what you and right? I have just spoken about, I'm because, like, do I want this headache? Because then? politicians, like, part of the job is thinking that your plan is the best. Like, compromising with another political party or doing a deal. I mean, that Moonshot Coalition conference was so interesting because many IFP voters slammed IFP for even of rocking course. up. Yeah. And so you've got to be thinking not just about who can I do a deal with, but, like, what will my constituencies think? Then let me answer it this way. I wouldn't be doing this and being a national leader of Rai Mzanzi if I wasn't prepared to do the top job. Okay. What's important, though, is to keep our egos in check Absolutely. and not make that the defining thing. If my ideal situation, if this were to ever be possible, because I'm passionate about writing, I'd love to be a writer. If, if I, we were to have a scenario where there are four political parties the terms of the coalition are quite clear. They might agree or disagree, but the political reforms have been agreed. It's clear who the president is going to be, and the political and government reform, and, and so on. Basically, a national turnaround plan is in place. Then there's nothing I would love more in five years' time than to go back to writing. Go be a writer. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I would really, because then when you've got a sense of national purpose... It's not about you. Mm. And what we find too often is somebody decides, no, I feel like being speaker now. Yeah. I'll cross over to the other guys and, and just sure. be with them. They're going to make me speaker. And that's what happens when you don't have national purpose. Okay. Final question. And I know it's a cheeky one. Given South Africa's history, aren't you too, be, you too young to be president? 
<laughs> you're only 47. <laughs> no, you know. Why, was- why do we live in a country where the median age is like 28, 29, <laughs> and a 47-year-old would be a spring chicken in the ANC and probably still in the youth league? Like, isn't that mismatch like fundamentally damaging? That like the vast majority of South Africans live a youth life that is young and fundamentally unrelatable and inaccessible to the political establishment as it currently exists. By the way, Dan is a new thing, ne? you know that. What's I mean, the new thing? That uh, people have to be old. Yes, of course it is. It's a new thing in South Africa. Mm. In no, I know. post-democratic South Africa. Of course it is. Right? And, and I think the fact that our median age is 27.6, I think, uh, right now, is actually an opportunity. One of the things voters fed up of is old people messing up a future they're not going to live in for sure and the moment has now arrived for somebody with the right depth of connection to young people is worldly understands not just our political system but the world as a whole Mm. and how just progressive politics is moving in the world to steer the country in a different direction there are hundreds of people who can do that and when you see our candidates list, you will see what I'm talking about. So that's the issue with Raisam Zanzi and their leader, Songhezo Zibi. What did you think? Is it worth all the hype? Let us know on all of our various social media platforms. And of course, you can go and check out this interview on YouTube. Just search the issue with Dan Corder. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify and Apple Music. And we will see you next week for the latest episode of the issue with Dan Corder. Thanks for listening.